This is Alan Epley from Shiner and the Life and Times, and you are listening to the New Scene Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the new scene. I am your host, Keith, and we're back with another brand new episode. How are we doing out there, huh? Are we surviving the heat? Are we surviving torrential summer thunderstorms? Are we surviving everything? I hope so. I hope so. And I'll tell you what, I'm looking forward to the end of August, okay? And I'm not talking about the This Day Forward song, wonderful as that is. Fall's the best season. I think I have reverse seasonal depression, you know, because ever since spring, I've been in a funk and I've just been in fear of hot weather. I don't like it. We're stuck inside. Summer's okay. It's fine. You know, fun things go on, but this is not my favorite time of year. Fall is my favorite time of year and I'm looking forward to it. So I hope you're doing okay out there and you will be because we've got a great show this week. We have... Mario Quintero from Spotlights. Now, I was familiar with Spotlights before this year because I had Chris Enriquez, the drummer, on the show last year. And I first heard the band then, and it was really good. But I'll tell you what, seeing them live multiple times out on tour with them really, really sold me on the band. If you have the opportunity to see them live, go and do it. Do yourself a favor. And uh, it was great to have Mario on the show. We cover everything, his history. Uh, He spent some of his early life in Colombia, moved back to Miami in the U.S. We go through his whole musical history leading up to Spotlights. We go through Spotlights history and all the interesting things that happened after, you know, they released their first EP. Well, not their first EP, but the one that got a lot of attention. It's a great discussion, and that's coming up shortly. But first, here's how you can support the new scene. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at New Scene Pod. Shirts. We have shirts available at Deathwish Inc., a long sleeve option, and t shirts. Reviews. Give us five star reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can write a review on Apple Podcasts and you can leave feedback on Spotify. Let us know how we're doing. And you can always email me at New Scene Pod at Iodine Records. Also, don't forget to support Iodine Recordings. My band, The Darling Fire, has two gigs coming up in August. Saturday, August 20th at Amityville Music Hall in Long Island, New York. That's with Loud Sounds, Semaphore, and Screaming from the Gallery. We're also playing Sunday, August 21st at my favorite Philadelphia venue, Kung Fu Necktie. And that's with Hold Down the Ocean and Josh Alvarez of Crossed Keys. Advanced tickets are available now. Come on out. I'm really excited to be playing some hometown shows. No Man, Poison Darts is now featured on the Spotify playlist, The Breakdown, with other great artists like Scowl, Zulu, Turnstile, Drain, and more. Check out the song. Check out the band. It's a great band. Also, No Man has tour dates with FOM. And those kick off July 14th in Iceland, and they're continuing throughout Europe in July. The Iron Roses have announced their new LP, and you can listen to the new single, Screaming for a Change, 
right now on all streaming services. Sign up for the iodine email list. You'll find out about everything first. For more information, check out the iodine Instagram at iodine recordings or head to their website at iodinerecordings.com. Also, don't forget to support this month's sponsor, New Morality Zine. New Morality Zine is a Midwest-based zine and independent record label specializing in hardcore, post-hardcore, and alternative music. And there's a lot of great bands on the roster. Pre-orders are up for Curse the Knife's Thank You for Being Here. The Sunstroke Bent Blue 7-inch is out now. Pick up a copy of that. Stateside have a second single out called If You Were Still Here. That's from their debut It's What We Do, and that's out July 31st. Also, don't forget Downward, two songs. That's out on 7-inch vinyl. Pick that up. Also, we're doing a vinyl giveaway for new morality zine, so listen up. You could win a new LP from Spaced. It's called Spaced Jams, and it just came out Friday the 22nd. Spaced are an excellent hardcore band out of Buffalo and are part of the NMZ roster. Do you want this record? This band is going places. They are excellent. To win... Here's what you do. Follow these accounts on Instagram at NewMoralityZine, at Spaced underscore HC, at NewScenePod, at Iodine Recordings, and tag a friend in today's podcast post or any post on the New Scene page and you'll be entered to win. I'll pick a winner in a week. Also, get 10% off any order in the NMZ web store with the code NewScenePod. That's all one word, new scene pod. For more information, head to the NMZ Instagram at New Morality Zine or head to their website at newmoralityzine.com. Okay. All right. So make sure you check back in with me in segment three. I'll tell you everything that's going on with me. But right now, we are going to speak to Mario Quintero of Spotlights. Enjoy.
right, we are here now with Mario Quintero. Mario, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Keith. Yes, Mario, it's great to have you here. You know, there's a lot going on with you. Spotlights just put out an excellent new album, Alchemy for the Dead. You just got off a epic two-month-plus run <laughs> touring the entire U.S. with more dates coming up soon. Your other band, Sisters, has a new single. Spotlights has two tracks out for the Soundgarden cover album. There's a lot going on, Mario. And you know what? We're going to cover all of that. But first, I have to ask you a very important question. What's that? How are you doing today? <laughs> today, I'm doing great. Um, honestly, yeah, I feel great. Woke up feeling good. I got a little bit of sleep. I, um, yeah, I'm a... I don't know. I'm excited. Got a lot of stuff going on. I'm I'm keeping busy after tour, which is number one, really, because otherwise I would be feeling kind of down and, and bummed out and anxious and depressed and all that. So it's been good. That's good. Yeah. 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 I was going to ask you, is that what you want to keep busy after tour? And it sounds like that's a yes from you. Yeah. For me, it's definitely a yes. I, uh, you know, like the first couple of days. So luckily after this tour in particular, uh, as soon as I was home for maybe two, three days, and then I had to turn around and drive right back to New York to work on some recordings with a couple of bands there, which was nice because it kind of, I fell right back into like my normal, you know, routine. But yeah, after tour, if there's nothing going on, if I come home and I'll drive Sarah insane just because all I do is pace around, kind of uh, walk up and down the stairs, look out the window, you know, just kind of looking for, for things that keep me busy. And it, it drives her nuts. And it drives <laughs> me nuts, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hear you about, uh, you know what it is? Like, I always think I want a ton of time to do nothing, right? And uh, if there's one weekend to do nothing, I'm happy. And if there's any more than that, I start to freak out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm the same way. Like I totally, I, I like the idea of downtime and relaxing, but I'm just not, I think I maybe was like better at it when I was younger. Like when I was a teenager, I feel like I remember being pretty damn good at just doing nothing. Uh, or at least I think so, but I always also had a guitar in my bedroom. So like to me doing nothing was like sitting around playing guitar, which here that, that also helps, you know, like if I can just come downstairs and start writing, um, it helps me kind of get through that thing. But if I don't, if I really don't do anything and sometimes what happens after tour is like, there's just no motivation on top of nothing to do. So like, you know, or there might be some work, but it might be not, you know, something that I'm not like super amped on. So I'll, I'll do that. But then like, I look at the guitar and I'm just like, ah, whatever. There's no, like, there's nothing happening. And that's when I can go down the hole and kind of start feeling real anxious and depressed and just weird. And, you know, Exactly. I feel you on that. Just today, right? Super anxious because I'm burnt out and there's a lot going on. So I'm sitting in bed and I'm like, I'm not going to be able to do anything. Uh, I'm incapacitated. And then I got up and started working on the show and I was like, oh, I feel better. Yeah. Damn it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Uh, good times. Well, Mario, let's get to know you a little bit. Now, you were born in Colombia. Is that correct? No, so I I was born in California actually in Cerritos, California and uh or Anaheim technically where the the hospital was. But um by the time I was 6 months old, my parents moved back to Colombia where they're from. My my parents are Colombian like 100%. So, tech, you know, basically I was born there because before I even knew what life was, I was 
there uh, and grew up there till I was eight in Bogota. So you were born here and then they went back. Why did they go back? Um, I think my dad got a job offer. He was working. He's a banker and uh, he was working for a bank in in L.A. or in a whatever Orange County called Security Pacific Bank. And then they, I believe, I don't know if it was that same bank or another bank gave him a, an offer in Colombia to kind of run the whole international section of the bank. And so he, he moved back. We all moved back. And uh, yeah, that was that. At what age were you in Colombia until? So from six months until I think eight years old, it was like 1983 or 84 when we moved. Um, and kind of a similar reason leaving Colombia, we, uh, this was kind of like, I guess two different reasons. It was like, this was like the height of, you know, cartel shit going on in, in Colombia and just shit right. was getting really sketchy and kidnapping was basically a sport there at that point. You know, my parents weren't rich by any means, but we were like, you know, middle class, I guess what would be considered middle class. And anybody with any sort of decent job or money was just on patrol because like they were just kidnapping kids and, and people kind of like for sport, like it would just be like, oh, I need 50 bucks. I'm going to go kidnap this guy's wife and get him to pay me 50 bucks, you know, and just everything was just on edge. So on top of, on top of that being weird, my dad did, I think because of that, and I'm, I don't know this a hundred percent, but I, I'm pretty sure this is how it went down was he got a job offer in Miami working for another bank and it was a better offer in the long run anyway. So things just kind of worked out where we kind of wanted to get out anyway, and he got a good offer to to do so. So we moved to Miami then, 1984. I'm pretty sure it was 84. Was it crazy in Miami too? Because I've watched a lot of those uh, cocaine documentaries, <laughs> and th there's one thing that always sticks out in my mind mm -hmm. from one of these documentaries. There were so many killings that they didn't have room in the morgues. Yeah. So at one at one point, the police department rented a Burger King freezer truck to store bodies in <laughs> it's like COVID in new york yeah um yeah i mean honestly i was so young that like i didn't see any of that in miami i'm sure it was going on and i do know friends that were whose parents were like drug dealers and you know lived part of that life not so much like the colombian mafia area but there was also it wasn't even just colombian there was like from everywhere uh kind of filtering in through miami so yeah, I'm sure it was crazy around that time. But like for me, being a little kid moving from Columbia to Miami at that point, I was like in fucking heaven because like I could just go outside by myself and ride my bike around the neighborhood and like, you know, just be like without having somebody with you all the time. Like, you know, my my recreational like activities in Columbia consisted of like riding my bike in like the underground parking lot of the apartment building that we lived in. And, and maybe sometimes, you know, going to the park across the street in Columbia. So in like a lot of uh, countries in South America and Central America, everybody kind of has like not nannies per se, but like, you know, housekeepers that live with you. Mm -hmm. And so, it was just always, if I wanted to go play, there was always like my housekeepers with me or, you know, or my parents or somebody who was like helping out at the house with me. I couldn't just like walk outside as a little kid. Wow. I'm sure I would have been fine, but it's just, that was kind of the mentality then, you know? So moving to Miami, 
<clears throat> was amazing because it was just like a free for all. I could just run around the neighborhood, do whatever I want. I met kids in the neighborhood doing the same thing. And uh, yeah, it was awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. 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 Like uh, growing up in suburban Pennsylvania, forget about it. We could leave and go out all day until the sun almost went down and then come back home, running around in the woods and at friends' houses, all that stuff. Yeah. We'd like be miles away skateboarding for, you know, six hours, seven hours at a time and nobody would think anything of it. (laughs) That's crazy. So talk about your relationship with music. When did you start playing? Well, let's start with this. Yeah. When did you start playing? Did you start with guitar? I did. Uh, Well, technically, I started with a bass. So I think I was 10 years old. I don't know. I got a bug up my ass to just play guitar. My parents always had like a guitar around the house. My dad, I think, wanted to play guitar his whole life and never really did. Uh, But they had a lot of friends that were super musical and they've always been really into music overall just huge fans of music especially like colombian and mexican music and so they would always have these parties and their friends would bring their guitars and they'll sit around and play songs and drink and hang out um so i was around it my whole life like guitars were always there uh different kinds of you know guitars and there was always a this acoustic like a classical acoustic that my dad had since i can remember just sitting around like it would be in a closet or it'd be in a room and always just kind of here and there. And, um, this was like around the time when, you know, MTV was, was awesome and was playing tons of videos. So like everybody kind of wanted to, to be a rock star, you know, it was like, you're, I was watching all this awesome, like hair metal on, 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 uh, MTV and I wanted to fucking, I wanted to do that shit. So I, I kind of started picking it up a little bit and, had no idea what to do with it, you know, just kind of like holding it. I think I was holding it left-handed at first and had no idea what to do. So I just asked my mom one day, I was like, could I take a guitar lesson and just see what it's like? And she let me do it, took me to the music store. And I had so much, I didn't know what was going on that I asked, I like looked at a bass guitar. I was like, I think that's what I want to play. Like, I think it's a bass guitar, but I really wanted to play like a regular guitar. (laughs) Yeah, I I started on bass because... I thought guitar would be too hard, you know? Yeah, I mean, I I honestly didn't even know the difference at this point. I was just like, that one looks cool. And the guy pulled it down and it was giant. It was like this, like, I think it might have even been like a Travis Bean or, or no, it was a Kramer, but with, uh, with the aluminum neck. So it was like mm. super heavy. I mean, I'm a little 10-year-old kid. And uh, I was like, I don't know, this is like way harder than the one at home, you know? <laughs> so I took a lesson and learned, I think, like a, a U2 song and maybe like some Beatles song or something. I don't really remember. But the U2 song, I do remember. Uh, I think it was Streets With No Name or something off Joshua Tree. Anyway. And it was cool, but I was just like, this is like kind of not really the part that I wanted to learn. I want to learn the other stuff that's going on. And so went back like whatever, a week or two later and was like, I think I want the guitar. And uh, he pulled down this like kind of like a Strat wannabe of some sort. I can't remember what it was. But uh I rented that one for a while and took a few lessons and that like really got to me. And once, as soon as like I, I learned one or two Cure songs and I don't even, I I mean, I I think uh, the first thing I learned at one of my lessons was like a Pink Floyd, like a little pink, a piece of a Pink Floyd song. But anyway, as soon as I learned a couple songs, I was just hooked for the rest of my life and never put it down. Nice. Yeah. 
And what what's like your main thing musically? It sounds like we liked some hair metal, some U2, some Cure, <laughs> but is there is there any one thing that particularly grabbed you or did you get deep into like punk or hardcore or or any of that stuff? Um all of the above really, but yeah, I mean really early on it was basically whatever was on MTV. I gravitated towards a lot of the hair metal stuff like, you know, Motley Crue and Poison and rat and shit like that but i didn't really listen to it it was just i would like it on tv those were the videos that got me kind of pumped because they were always like live show uh videos you know they'd be like yeah. jumping around and the drummer was going nuts and shit so but on top of that any i mean really anything what what really got me was when i uh i have two older sisters and i would raid their tape collections all the time and record collections and I think the first album that really kind of like set me on a path was Black Celebration by Depeche Mode. Mm. Um, it was that. And then I had Japanese Whispers by The Cure. I took both of those from my sister's room and was kind of bouncing back and forth, like trying to figure out what I liked the best. In the long run, The Cure ended up taking over my life like completely. And that's pretty much all I listened to was like, not everything, but they were they became my favorite band and still are my favorite band. And um, yeah, but there was so much a lot of a lot of I guess was, was new wave back then, you know, like Echo and the Bunnymen, the Smiths, the Cure, Depeche Mode, New Order, uh, all that stuff really got me. And then when I was about eleven years old in junior high, eleven or twelve, I started skateboarding a lot more and got more into like punk rock and hardcore and like found out about minor threat and bad brains and fugazi and kind of went that way but always kind of mixed the two worlds together i like that yeah it's uh you know i like when people uh have a varied taste which it sounds like you do because i would lock onto one thing and then abandon everything else and i think especially in terms of being a musician and writing music, yeah. having a broad taste and, and incorporating all of those elements is only going to help you. Yeah, I mean, I kind of like you, though, I, I definitely am the person that latches onto one thing, like, bad, because, and it'll usually be one record. So, like, for instance, when I found Helmet, uh, I heard Meantime for the first time, and it just fucking changed my brain completely, and I didn't put that down. I did go back and I got uh, Strap It On as well. Yeah, but those two records, like anybody who knew me around that time was just they were just annoyed all the time because that's all I listened to was those two records until I knew every drum beat, every guitar part, every like, you know, I just wore it to death. Uh, <laughs> and like, you know, and it was the same with like The Cure, you know, as soon as Disintegration came out or when I had a this mixtape that my sister that I stole from my sister that she had made that had like um, it was like a mix of Head on the Door uh had a few like singles on there so it was like stuff from staring at the sea and like the walk and let's go to bed other songs like that but it was that tape i even i still even remember like the order of the songs on the mixtape to where like if i hear uh, one of the songs that was on there to me what comes next is not what actually should come next on the album <laughs> <laughs> and i mean this was when i was like 10 years old so I love that. You know, there's uh, there's albums that people associate with me because I ran them into the ground and loved them so much. And that's cool. But there's also like this uh, this historic recall that I get from certain songs. Yeah. And I don't know how I don't know how the connection happened. Yeah. But like, you know, like uh, I'll hear a sunny day real estate song and I'll remember 
a random moment from like 23 years ago. Yeah. At the specific time I heard the song and I'm like, that's so cool. I feel like that's part of why we get stuck liking the stuff that we, that, that like got us in those formative years, you know? Yeah. As much as the the music is a big part of it, it's like the moments when you heard that music, good or bad or whatever was going on. Sometimes it's not even a memorable moment, but the two of those things together kind of form like a, a thing in our brains that just sticks, you know? It's a time capsule. Yeah. And you totally. can access feelings and sensations that you forgot about. Like I'll I'll listen all right. Here's a good example. I this one album all right, there's this album uh a types by the band Hopes Fall, right? Okay. I didn't listen to it when it came out. I I started listening to the record in 2017. Uh-huh. And when I listen to that record, I feel 2004. <laughs> yeah. Even though I didn't yeah. like even though I didn't listen to the record back then and that's an incredible that's power. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, just the even just the sound of that band can like take you back. It's interesting, man. So when did you start performing? So technically, when I was, I think I was 12, when I played in my very first band, it was a band called Basement uh, with some friends in Miami. You know, I didn't, I still, we, I wasn't very good yet at guitar or anything, and neither was anybody in the band, but we, we had some cool stuff. And I still remember some of the songs that we played. Um, I think we might have played like a party as that band. We played one party. You know, and this is like junior high. I think two of the guys were in high school, so we played like a high school party. And um that was that was my first technically like my first show. You know, there was probably like ten friends there hanging out. And ever since then I've been trying to perform as much as possible. So like and it was n- never really that easy until I got much older, but like, you know, had another high school band with a bunch of friends. We played a few parties. I think we might have played one show at a at a venue or like you know what we considered a venue but then i guess when i really started playing shows was probably when i was about 18 or 19 i joined a band with my friend mike uh in miami and we actually like you know he knew people on the scene and started actually like doing things and we didn't really go anywhere at all but we would play shows in front of people so since then, I've really been non- nonstop. So you got an early start. So that's a long time until we get to 2015, 16, around when Spotlight started. Yeah. So what what are some of the things that you did? Because I know you're an engineer. I know you work with bands. I know you do sound for bands. I know right. you record with bands. Like, yeah. give us some of uh, your experience and what, you, what you've done. Um, I mean, I guess I can give you kind of the story of how, how I got here, uh, you know, Yes. Basically doing what I said, you know, playing in bands, always kind of trying to to do that. Um, there was a time when I think I was 18, I started going to community college in Miami and uh, I had decided that I wanted to do recording stuff instead. I don't know, I, was, I had been kind of falling out of the band thing and not really playing guitar as much, uh, you know, being a stupid teenager, drinking and just taking bong hits every all every day, all day long. Uh, oh yes i just wasn't doing much other than like listening to hip-hop and being a dumbass but uh (laughs) but you know i was i finally made it through high school and got out and was like i i wanted to do something that i liked and i had still been playing and kind of recording i had been messing around like i had a four track that i was messing around with and um just decided to go to school for for engineering you know i didn't really know too much about it i had been in the studio a couple times 
when I was younger with my younger bands uh, and my guitar teacher owned a studio. So like I, I kind of always just liked when I would go take a lesson, I could like look at the console and like just be in this little studio. Um, so by the time it came to go to school, I decided to go to Miami-Dade Community College for engineering. Did one semester of that. And uh, for that particular like program, you actually had to take a music class or play in an ensemble or something. So I was like, oh, okay, I, I play guitar. I'll play in like the jazz ensemble or whatever. And I, I did know a little bit of jazz stuff just because I had taken lessons and my guitar teacher always showed me some stuff. So, uh, and I think I even played in the jazz band a little bit in high school too. So yeah, started doing that. And that really like took over my, my whole life. Like I just fell into it hard and stopped playing rock music at all and just studied jazz for basically until I was like, like the next four years, pretty much. So I was like 22. So I did the community college thing for a while and, uh, and yeah, just learned music, like started studying theory and all that stuff and playing in the big band and it kind of took off. And, uh, I thought I wanted to go to school forever. Basically. I'm like, my goal was to, to maybe, I don't know, become a professor or something, you know, what else can you do with a jazz degree? <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so I, uh, transferred to Berkeley. I got a little scholarship to go to Berkeley in Boston. And, um, oh, wow. by the time I got there, I think I had just like worn it out to where like the first year when Berkeley was cool. I, I was a little disheartened by the fact that I wasn't really learning anything. I had everything I was learning. I had already learned at a community college and granted like this, that community college has a, is known for having an incredible jazz program, but but still, I mean, I wasn't even paying to go there. It was I was basically going there for free, and now I'm at Berkeley. And even with the scholarship I had, it's still like twenty thousand dollars a year or a semester, a semester or no, a year. Oh yeah, um, which is ridiculous. And you know, I wasn't the teachers weren't really like blowing my mind. I wasn't really, I don't know, just wasn't really doing it for me. And at that time, my friend Mike, who I had started playing in a band with in Miami, like kind of. I wasn't really like, we weren't going for anything. We were just kind of playing in a band. He came with me to Berkeley as well. We just started playing more and writing more songs. And then the rock started kind of pulling me back. And, you know, the jazz thing just got a little old and stale. And I felt like I was starting to get to that point again where I was like, eh, you know, I'd look at the guitar and wasn't really inspired. But the rock stuff started grabbing me again. So uh, while I was in Boston, him and I started a band, started playing shows. And uh, and yeah, eventually I kind of fell out of the jazz thing. And I still love it. I still, when I do have time, I'll I'll look through things and, you know, play a couple tunes and try and try and keep my chops up a little bit. But I'm nowhere near where I was, you know, back in 2000. Yeah. Yeah. So you can actually read theory and all that good stuff. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like I could, I was never very good at like sight reading, but I uh I could sight read chord charts, so I could like sit down and read a big band chart, you know, without ever seeing it, uh just the chords. Uh melody lines, I wasn't I wasn't very good at like sight reading right away, you know, I could I would usually like fake it and like figure it out real quick and memorize it. But uh but yeah. Impressive. See, I still don't know the name of one chord, but I can <laughs> play guitar. <laughs> I, I just, yeah, I just, you know, I just put my hands on there and I get it done. No, I mean, and I don't think anybody has to have 
any sort of formal training to become a great musician. I mean, that's obvious. We've seen that a million times, but, but I don't think it hurts at the same time. Like if it's something you're interested in and you want to put a little time in, it can only help, you know, because it just opens your ears up to different things, especially ear training and like learning kind of like basic, even very basic jazz harmony. Cause it, you know, a lot of those chords are using, a lot of the th- the stuff that like we hear in in bands that we like modern like you know post hardcore and stuff like that that sounds kind of tense and a little dissonant is really what you're hearing is kind of that theory where it's like those jazz chord you know quote unquote jazz chords that have a lot of like tensions in them they have all these higher tensions and so things get a little weirder sounding and dissonant and i think that's what we like that's a, that kind of makes the difference between like a singer songwriter playing a regular A chord to G chord versus, you know, a band like whatever Fugazi or any, you know, Jawbox or whatever. Exactly. I, my favorite chords are those ones where like you throw in a couple higher strings and then you're just hitting a lot of low strings. Those are the best. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So you're in Boston, you're performing with your friend, right? How, how old are you around this time? Uh, I was, so I moved there when I was 21, uh, so yeah, around like 21, 22, 23, around that time. So where are you in life at this point? I mean, do you want to do music full time? Do you have any sort of plan? Like what, what's going on with you? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think I ever stopped wanting to do music full time. So like ever since I was literally like 10, when I started playing guitar, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. And like, even when I was being a dumbass in high school, not, not playing much or whatever, I wanted to do something with music and I knew that that's what I wanted to do. So like as even at the lowest points when I just wasn't really inspired to do anything, I, that's all I care about. That's all I really wanted to do. So yeah, at that point, I mean, the goal was to, to play in a band and start trying to do something with it. You know, that, that, that became kind of my focus was like, also, and I was still engineering at the time, so I still wanted to record bands. I was recording our band at the time, and like any friends that I would meet, I would try to get them to come over to my bedroom and record in my bedroom. You know, um, I had an I had bought an ADAT, which is like a a super VHS digital recorder that came out like in the late nineties. Uh, so I had this eight track recorder, digital eight track recorder, and a little mixer, and you know, through all the different places that we lived in, I had that set up, and we would. I would try to use it as much as possible. And yeah, I learned, I just learned trial by fire. I never, I never went back to school for recording. I just started doing it a lot. And, uh, I think learned more because of that in the long run, really. Nice. So is that how you got by just recording bands and people that you knew? No, no, no. I wish I was, uh, waiting tables ever since I got to Boston, basically, since I landed there, started waiting tables, busing tables first, and, uh, then got promoted to be a waiter and uh just did that pretty much until i didn't have to until like let's see 2000 i think the last time i waited tables or bartended was 2006 ah yeah so from for like the next basically from 1998 when i moved to boston to 2006 i wait i waited tables nonstop. what changed in 2006 where you didn't have to do it anymore so that's i had moved to san diego and finally like took the plunge and built a recording studio there i uh, went into crazy amounts of debt never made any money back but i had that recording studio for eight years i ran it for eight years and then sold it 
uh, to, to some guys that kept it going for, I think, another eight. And finally, just the building got sold. So they had to shut it down. You never made any money back? I mean, I w- we would make a little money, but no, I definitely never turned an, an actual profit in terms of like proper business, you know? <laughs> yeah. We were always in debt. So, uh, but I, would, I wouldn't change it for a thing. Like, you know, I moved to San Diego with that intention and it was my, my buddy Mike at the same, uh, again, we both moved there and just kept playing in bands, but we were like, let's do this. Let's do this recording studio thing. We found the money borrowed it from everywhere we could and uh built the place ourselves like with our own hands we did construction for nine months straight every single day and built a pretty fucking awesome studio um with uh rehearsal rooms and you know we didn't know what we were doing business wise and we and we didn't know what we were doing building wise either really but like the <laughs> results ended up pretty great and it lasted for a way longer than i expected it to and i learned a lot um, met a bunch of people and, you know, that's where I met Sarah too, recording her band at that studio. Yes. Sarah, your wife, who you are in spotlights with. That's right. So you met her while you were out in San Diego. Mm-hmm. Tell that story. Yeah. She had moved out there with, uh, her boyfriend at the time and, uh, their drummer, they were in a band called Marisol. And, um, I think they moved there in like 2006, maybe. And, uh, yeah, they just asked around the neighborhood, you know, like about music stuff. And somebody told them about Black Box, which was the studio that we owned. And uh, I just got a knock on the door one day and and it was her and her boyfriend Lane at the time. And uh, yeah, her and I just hit it off. We were friends for years. So I recorded their band, did, a, I think, an EP and an album with them. And yeah, we just became really good friends. We were friends for two and a half, three years, I think. Two years. Yeah, two years. She had broken up with her boyfriend. I had broken up with my girlfriend. And I don't know, things just happened. And we we uh, ended up together. But right around that time, her friend, Mike Hayden and Christy, there were a couple as well, Mike and Christy Hayden. They they were also from Chicago, but they had moved to San Diego a little earlier than, than Sarah. And um, Mike Hayden started the band, well, what became the band Sleep Lady which both Sarah and I played in. And that was the first project that her and I did musically together, where we played together. Ah, okay. Okay. How soon after your breakup with your other partners does uh, your and Sarah's relationship begin, right? Is it, I mean, is it weird at all? Is it like, oh, maybe we should (laughs) wait or like... Oh, man. Yeah, it was was a lot of drama. Uh, It was like basically like being in high school again, but (laughs) in our, well, I was like 30 at the time. Um, and it was just, it was incredible. You know how it goes. It's, it's always, it's always weird. Yeah. We didn't wait that long, but we were, you know, it just was something that was real and, and we knew it and we didn't care what anybody thought and kind of like spotlights, (laughs) you know, you got to take a chance, right? Yeah, exactly. I'm glad we did. So when does spotlights get started? Does that get started in, in San Diego? So the idea for it definitely does. Um, ever since we met, we had always talked about like doing something like, you know, we should record a song, like just whatever. And eventually, I think it was, well, it was around 2009. We finally went into the studio, her and I, and wrote a song, which is on our band camp. It was technically the first Spotlight song. Uh, just her and I. 
in like four hours. We just went into the studio. I was like, play something. She played a little bass line and then overdubbed another part. I did a guitar part. I played drums on it. And literally we had the song done, written and recorded in four hours. And we were like, well, that was pretty easy. We should probably do that again. <laughs> we should probably keep that going. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but at the, but we were playing in Sleep Lady at the time and Sleep Lady was kind of doing well locally. So we were playing tons of shows and did a little bit of touring. And that was really the focus was like to keep that band going. And I, we had an idea to move to New York and the whole band actually was going to move to New York. But, uh, Mike and Christy ended up having a kid. And so they weren't able to move. The, I mean, being new parents moving to New York is probably the worst idea anybody could ever have. So they, they sat that out, moved back to Chicago so they would be closer to family and all that. And Sarah and I still moved to New York and we were like, well, let's just do spotlights now for real, you know, and, and we just went for it. Nice. Yeah. Nice. So you, you moved out to New York, correct? Yeah. yeah. 2013. In 2013? Mm -hmm. And then you were going to get the band started here? Yeah, exactly. So uh, talk about that. How did you do it? Uh, did you know people here? Like, uh, how did you get it started? So, I mean, we moved to New York really not knowing anybody. I did. We did have a couple friends that lived there, but not. They weren't really in like the music scene per se. So we didn't really have anybody to like tell us what was cool or what to go. The only thing we had found out about was St. Vitus, which was awesome. You know, we knew there was good rock shows there. Yep. Uh, but other than that, yeah, we didn't really have any reason to move there other than just like a change. San Diego felt really, I had sold the studio and San Diego, I think it just, it's so nice there. And like the weather's so beautiful that people are really fucking lazy <laughs> and sorry, <laughs> San Diego friends, but it's true. Um, so, you know, just, there was a lot of talk people being like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And nobody would actually do anything exactly. or follow, follow through with anything. Uh, that's the California way. I'm sorry yeah. to any California listeners, but <laughs> listen, when I go out there for work, they're like, you're from the East coast, aren't you? And I'm like, that's right. Yeah. I mean, to the point, like to that point when we were building the studio and, uh, we were in like a neighborhood where kind of all the musicians lived, people would just walk up through the alley and be like, you guys are actually going to finish this. <laughs> like, <laughs> be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the point is we're going to actually finish it. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so. Yeah, moved to New York 2013. And the idea for Spotlights, it kind of went the same. Like, I just, I started messing around on my laptop, putting together like some more electronic stuff. We didn't really have any sort of idea of what it was going to be or how it was going to sound. It was just going to be as natural as possible. Like, whatever comes out, and as long as we love it, this is what it's going to be. We're not going to let it, like, our, our, our only like rule for the band was that we're not going to let anybody fuck this up for us. <laughs> so like, I love that, you know, that that's what it was. And that's why we kind of started on our own. It was just the two of us. I was playing drums, Sarah on bass and us both doing vocals with like electronic backing stuff. Um, we played a couple shows like that. You know, we played our very first show was a party at our, at a friend of ours place, like a loft thing, which was cool. And then we played, a place called Spike Hill, which isn't there anymore, but uh, Williamsburg, to literally one friend, the sound person, and not even the bartender because she left. <laughs> uh, but you know, and that was that's how we did it. We just fucking put our heads down and and started over and and uh, kept going and didn't stop. I think I remember that place, Spike Hill. That sounds so familiar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was on. Uh, 
what's that main road on in Williamsburg? Bedford. Bedford. Yeah, it was like right on, right by the L stop on the Bedford L stop. You know, now I'm sure it's like a clothing store, or Starbucks or something. Yeah, one of those. It's yeah. got to be. Wow. So you actually started on drums in the band. Yeah. Yeah. So when did it switch? Um, I think we had played maybe three or four, five shows uh, to nobody. And, you know, we were going, things were feeling good musically. Like I liked the songs that we were we were making, but I just, I kept wanting to add guitar. And I've always just felt weird about having backing guitar tracks. Yeah. <laughs> so we played one show with our friend Andrew Farwell playing guitar at pianos. And I remember at that point being like, I just, I think I just want to play guitar and find a drummer. It makes more sense. You know, I'm more of a guitar player anyway. Uh, and that's kind of how I write as like, even though I, when I'm writing songs, the drums are a huge part of it and sometimes are actually the beginning of, of the writing idea. Mm -hmm. Um, it just felt more natural on stage for me to play guitar, you know? And so I, I did that and then we found, we we did the whole Craigslist thing of looking for drummers, tried out a bunch of people. We have some ridiculous stories about those. Give us a couple because I've been through this too. <laughs> I went through the same exact through thing in New York City on Craigslist trying to find musicians and, you know, well, all right, one time it went really well and every other time it was a disaster. So give us a story. Um, I mean, I think the funniest one was this guy. He uh, He sent us like an EPK, you know. It was like videos of him playing and all this stuff. Uh, really nice guy, but you know, he, in the videos, it looked like he was shredding, like he was ripping, and the the music sounded good, the recording sounded good. But he got there, and uh, I mean, at this point, like Sarah and I, we're not like we don't have like our tones fully developed for like what Spotlights is going to be, but we're already like loud and somewhat heavy. Yeah. And even though the stuff was back then was still a little more like I don't know, electronic based we needed a real drummer that could like hit hard and, and, and play. And that's what I thought this guy was. He sits down and he was like really quiet, like barely talking. And we're just like, all right, well, let's try it. You know, did you learn any of the songs? He's like, yeah. So we're like, counts it off one, two, three, four. And he's like, like barely playing the drums. I mean, like not even touching them. And we're like, you can, you can play like you can actually hit, you know, you can lay into it a little bit. And he's like, Oh, okay. Just could not play. Like he could not hit the drums. And I think honestly, he just wasn't a very good drummer. Cause, and definitely did not learn the songs. He would just play these random parts. It was just, it was kind of mind blowing. And it, one of those kind of, you had to be there to really, to really grasp the, uh, the weirdness of it all. But he was one of them. Uh, he actually ended up going to the show, our first show that night after we tried him out at the party yeah and uh didn't really talk to us he just walked in and then left <laughs> i was like i think <laughs> i think he realized what it actually was going to sound like and and wasn't into it so the next day we tried another guy out uh younger kid like i mean a younger i mean probably in his mid-20s and uh he sits down and he's totally the guy that just won't stop playing like we're trying to talk <laughs> we're trying to talk to him like about the parts and he's just like and it wasn't even that good he just kept like hitting the drums every yeah. chance he got it's like he just went there to be able to sit behind a drum kit you know that was like his <laughs> that was like his guitar center moment um so those you know we had a few of those and then finally one of sarah's uh co-workers at a salon that she was working at her cousin was a drummer 
uh, this guy Joey, and we got his number, and he ended up being really cool, incredible drummer. Uh, we played a few shows with him. He really helped us kind of like develop into like more of a band. He wasn't necessarily the perfect drummer for us by any means, but super useful as like a stepping stone to where we were going. Uh, we parted ways and then played with a couple other people and finally landed with Chris. Uh, and we've been with him since. So Yes, Chris, who has been on the show, and he told the story, the epic story of uh, him joining you for the Deftones and Refuse <laughs> tour. Yep. <laughs> That's a good one. I think it's a good lesson. It's, you know, when I talk to musicians like you, Mario, I, I think this is a good lesson in how to do things. Because when I was younger, I would be like, oh, I need to have all the equipment first. I need to have the studio first. I need to find all the perfect people and then I can do this. And that that is wrong. You just you need to work with whoever you can, even if it's one person, you need to make it whatever it is yeah. and you build, you build a bridge to the next thing to get where you need to be. 100% right. And I mean, I think I've had that mentality with with everything cuz I've ever since I was younger, like I was never worried about having the nicer guitar or the better amp. I just wanted anything like give me, I just want, you know, I don't know. I, I, I guess I just have that in me somehow where like, even with like when I was little with toys, like if I couldn't get that toy, I would f take the shittier version and try and make it into that thing, you know, like, uh, so I didn't care if it was a four track or an eight track or a 12, like it just any tools that I've had along the way I've tried to make, work and i think because of that i still have that mentality and sarah's like that as well like there it doesn't matter what you have or or the there's never going to be a perfect situation unless you just start and just go and go and go exactly and that that's uh I, that's the mentality i have now i don't know if i was just entitled before or if i just i just didn't understand how things worked eh, maybe both but i mean you're not alone i, I mean there's people like that all the time i meet people like that all the time where it's like they're more worried about having the right amp before they start a band than writing a song you know so earlier you were talking about let me make sure i have this correct before i say this you said a lot of your songs spotlights will start with like drums right because you originally played drums yeah and you know it's interesting to hear you say that because having been out with you guys and listened to you a lot and having seen you a lot of times now like it's very like yeah, it's like really drum heavy. It's like this driving, pounding force. So I can see like what yep. you're saying, how it kind of starts on the drums. Yeah, I don't know. For me, that drums and bass kind of make music for me. You know, like I, I am a guitar player and I love guitar and and whatnot. But to me, that's more like uh like icing on the on the on the cake, you know, and especially in heavy music, um, I get I think that's one of the things that frustrates me in like heavier music recording sometimes is the bass is not a focus, which is weird to me because that's what makes things heavy, <laughs> you know, yes. Drum, drums and bass together can make the whole song heavy, no matter what the guitar is doing. So, um, and I think just internally, like my brain hears drum beats first. Um, I'm not the type of songwriter that like sits down and like thinks like chords, lyrics, you know, Usually it's drums, maybe a riff is in there already, like, but it could be bass or guitar. Uh, but for me, like, I just, I like songs that have where the drum beat isn't just like following the song. The drum beat is a hook in itself. And like, I try my best to always think about that when I'm, when I'm writing, just because 
I think that kind of like separates certain music from other music. It, it it just like, and I think it comes from listening to The Cure a lot. If you listen to them, especially anything after like "Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me," and even before like so the the drum beats, it might it's usually one drum beat first of all that goes through the whole song and never changes, but that beat is always a standout part of the song. So it's something that you remember. And there's little intricacies throughout the beat that might change, but the actual beat never changes. And I don't usually take it that far, but that mentality of like everything kind of being a hook that sticks in your head, uh, not a hook in the sense of like a pop melody, but like just something that you that stands out in the song and isn't just kind of following one main part. Yeah, I like those bands where it's like the drums and the bass are so locked in. It's like the guitar can almost do whatever it wants and it's still going to be solid. Like you guys are a good example of that. My friend Doug's band, Ecstatic Vision, is another good example of that. Like the the drummer and the bass player are just so locked in. It's like the guitar can jump in, jump out, do whatever. It doesn't matter. And in the the example of Spotlights, when I would see you guys, those, those rhythms would be in my head for hours after the show so it's it awesome. works awesome yeah i mean yes. like another example is is shiner i know you know yes. shiner too uh they like paul melanowski's bass playing is i think one of the best examples of what a bass player should be what a rock bass player should be just because he uses space tone and and just timing and it it changes everything it makes the song him you know, obviously Gherkin's drum beats also are super like just creative and and special. They stand out. So each song has its own thing with the bass and drums to where the rest, obviously it's amazing, the guitar work, but it's all based off that core sound. Yes, absolutely. So uh Spotlights first got on the map with the tight tight I can't say it. Titles. titles. <laughs> Tid- I want to say titles, but it's titles, like the like the ocean. Right, right. Yes, this was the 2016 debut, yes? Yep, that was it. I mean, technically, well, technically we had a, a, an EP that came out before that called Demonstration, which is, uh, it was released on Croquill Records as well, just before titles. Um, but that was, it was called Demonstration because it was literally like our demos, and uh, there was, I think, four or five songs on that, which I still like a lot, actually. Of course. So, titles, we get a lot of attention from this, right? Did you guys self-release that? No. So, that was on... It, it was released by a, a small label out of San Antonio called Croquill Records. Mm-hmm. The dude, BJ, that owns it was super cool. He he just was super helpful and, and went out of his way to to help us out to get the record made and and yeah, and, and it ended up working out. <laughs> <laughs> so when, once it's out there, once it's released, like how quickly do things start happening? Like I read uh, Brooklyn Vegan picked it up and premiered a song and we know the Deftones Refused tour happened. But like, you know, from the from the time it was released, like how quickly did things start happening? I mean, as quickly as that, like the day that uh, Brooklyn Vegan released the first single or premiered the first single which was Walls, the first song off the record. It was literally two or three days after that, we got a, an email from Deftones booking agent. So the album hadn't even come out yet, but that song was out on Brooklyn Vegan. And a friend of ours, Aaron Harris, who had recorded uh, or mixed a, an album for Sleep Lady back in the day, we met him through that. 
He was a drum tech for Abe Cunningham, and he was on tour with Deftones at the time. He heard the song, passed it on to Chino to check out, and yeah, like three days after that, we got an email from their agent. <laughs> and that was that. Was your mind blown? I mean, three, like, okay, I... <laughs> that would be I had an understatement, unre- yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, all right, I put out an EP in 2017, and this is what I imagined happening for me, you know, because I was like, oh, this is so good. <laughs> I'm so talented. I'm going to post this, and all my friends are going to tell me how great I am, and we'll start getting show offers and all that stuff. But yeah, uh, that didn't exactly happen, but it <laughs> happened to you. Well, yeah, I mean, and I've been there a million times. Like, that's, you know, at this point, I'm 40 years old, so when when this, when that record came out when titles came out. So I've been playing a band since I was 13. <laughs> you know, you can do the math there, like how long it took for me to get this one moment. Yeah. And, uh, so yeah, man, it, it's, it's insane. And I mean, I think it was like Sarah and I, we were in Miami at the time uh, on vacation, just visiting my parents and we were at a bar. Like we had got, we got this email and literally thought it was like a spam email just because of, the way it was worded, it said like, hi, I represent a large rock band. Uh, let us know if you're available to for a tour or something. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it just <laughs> seemed like, okay, so we say yes, and then they're going to ask us for money or something, you know. Right. But then we look the guy up, and he works for CAA, and his roster is like insane. We're like, what the fuck? So I write back, like, yes, obviously, we're, inst- we're interested and yeah, sure enough, we were, we went to a bar to get a drink, like just being like, holy shit, what is this? And who is it? You know, cause we didn't know who it was. And uh, we had just gotten a, <laughs> I think two whiskeys and we look at the phone and the email came through and he's like, great, it'll be supporting Deftones and Refused. Here are the dates. <laughs> and uh, like at this point we hadn't even talked to Aaron who, who we knew worked with Deftones um, the only connection that we had, so Sleep Lady did play one show with the band Palms, mm-hmm. who was Aaron Harris, Chino, uh, it was basically three guys from ISIS and and Chino on vocals. Right. And that, you know, but we were like, really? Like, that was so long ago. Like, how did this, how the fuck did this happen? And so I text Aaron and I was like, hey, did you say anything to, like, Ch- to Chino? He's like, why? What happened? And he's like, I showed him your your new song. And I was like, yeah, they just asked us to go on tour <laughs> for... <laughs> like three weeks or whatever it was two weeks um so yeah it was more than mind-blowing and like just incredibly validating in so many ways that we were on to something you know and and i think that what that our approach to this band in particular was worth a shit to like you know not let anybody fuck this up for us first of all Mm -hmm. um and just do what we love and not give a shit about what anybody thinks and just keep going, you know, play to nobody, play to nobody. It doesn't matter. Like just keep going because we want to do it. Um, so yeah, it was, it was awesome. Incredible. And and the tour when it happened was amazing. Like for our first, we had played a, we had played a few shows in New York at that point, but like the only show that was a kind of like a, a quote, like maybe not a big show, but a bigger show was playing with Shiner. We opened for them just before this had happened, just before titles came out. And yeah, but our first real show, our first show on tour, let's say, was in front of, you know, 4,000 people opening for Deftones and refused. (laughs) This was like, (laughs) wow. Yeah, it, it was incredible, man. 
But how did the whole tour go? I mean, were you guys uh, good on stage? Were we confident? Were we locked in? Yeah, I mean, I'd like to say we were. I, I felt like we were at the time. I know that now looking back, I'm like, we were totally not there yet. But uh, but I think we pulled it off and we gained a lot of fans, you know, and the guys in, in the bands were really cool to us and made us feel like we belonged there. And, uh, you know, it felt real and it felt natural and like something that was going to keep kind of going. Like it, it didn't, you know, one thing we we really thought was like after this, now we really got to fucking work, you know, because now we have a little bit of a chance for people to actually hear this music. So we did our best just to to kick ass as much as we could at that point on tour. You know, obviously, I think our confidence is tenfold now on stage and with our own music. But uh, oh, yeah, but I think it, it was it was good, man. Yeah, I love that. How was it uh, touring with Deftones and Refuse like them personally? Did did everybody hang out? Was it cool? Yeah, I Deftones in particular are pretty social like when they're when they're on tour or at least on that tour, you know, they were out and about kind of walking around the dressing room area and yeah. Um Chino in particular would always come into our dressing room like right when we got there and be like, "You guys got everything? You good?" You you know, one day he brought a bottle of champagne in and he was like, "Let's let's do this." Like after the show and hung nice. out with us. So he he went out of his way to to make us feel comfortable and like would tell us like you guys I I wanted you here you know like you're you're not here for some fluke like I wanted you to be here so thank you and you know those moments really kind of like just change everything for you because if it was the opposite where you just feel like you're like some little band that got lucky to be on this tour and like they're making you kind of feel like that it's just it would I would feel terrible. I wouldn't want to be there, you know? Yeah, that that's really nice that he went out of his way to do that. Because, you know, I've heard stories where you're on tour with a band and, like, the other band doesn't talk to you. Or, like, I don't know, some guys are, like, sequestered away in a room and it's weird. I, you know, that, that can't be that fun. And, you know, I understand that everybody's going to have days where they're like, I don't want to talk, you know? Yes. Especially people like that and bands like that. Um, yeah. But I feel like we've been really lucky to where all the, the bands that we've supported have at the very least just made us feel really comfortable and and will hang out and chat as much as they're comfortable with you know not everybody's out like hanging the whole time but like but you know it's you're there together and i think that's as long as that feeling is is put out there like we're all here together it's not just like us and then you then we're happy doing it and honestly like that's that's one thing that we we kind of like like another kind of rule for us is like we don't want to tour with anybody like that you know more first and foremost we want to tour with people who are cool and want to want us to be there you know and even bands that we're taking out we want to tour with people who want to be there and who we get along with it's not even about the music it's like we're we're spending a lot of time together and we're doing this thing together and it should be a crew it's a business of relationships 100% Yep. That's what that's what I'm finding out more and more every day. So uh the deal with Epic Hack, when does that come about? So right after so after the Deftones tour, we we or after all those tours, we did a bunch of smaller stuff after that. We uh started writing our next record, uh Seismic, and we were going to record with Aaron Harris. So Aaron was doing a lot of recording at the time and we just got along really well with him and have very similar musical tastes. Um, 
and he he was always into it and we were always into it so we we're like hey why don't we do this next record together uh didn't know it who was going to put it out or anything we didn't didn't really have a plan but we were going to do it with him regardless um and we had a plan to maybe go to LA and record with him so you know we started brainstorming like maybe we should send out the demos before doing this so we can get a little bit of money cuz like studio time's not cheap and plane tickets aren't cheap so we just started shopping it around, sent it to a bunch of different places, a bunch of different label labels and um Ipecac. So, you know, Aaron knew Greg, the owner of Ipecac. They Isis had been he was the drummer from Isis, by the way, and he had uh Ip, Isis had been on Ipecac. And so they had a relationship, you know, we knew we were doing this thing with Aaron, so there was kind of a, a little bit of a relationship there. And Greg, the owner of Ipecac, got the record and right away was like, Hey, I'm I'm really into this. We know about the band, uh, but f- for us, for Ipecac to sign a band, both him and Mike have to like the band, Mike Patton. Yes. Um, and they both have to agree on it. So we were like, oh, and, you know, and he was like, I'll be honest, like Mike doesn't usually love this kind of stuff, but I'm going to send it over and we'll see what happens. And the next day we got an email being like, Mike loves it. Let's do it. And and that was it. That's <laughs> and we've great. been there ever since. Yeah. Do you ever have any interaction with Mike? Um, yeah, I mean, we've met them mostly the times that we've played with them. So like, you know, obviously we were just on tour with Mr. Bungle, so we spent quite a bit of time together. Uh, but before that, I think we met once when he was doing a show with Dillinger Escape Plan. He did a song with them when they, they played one of their last shows in, uh, at Terminal 5. Oh yeah, I was there. Oh, nice. Yeah, that was great. So we met that night and hung out a little bit. Uh, and then we played the Brooklyn Steel show opening for Bungle. And we actually had time to like sit and chat that day. Um, but he's awesome, man. He's been super supportive and like, will you know, send us an email when we're like putting, if we send out the new album or send in, the, you know, turn in the new album, he'll, he'll always respond and, and be supportive. But at the same time, he's not really a big part of the, of the label as far as like the, the day to day goes, you know, Greg and, and Mark Shapiro are, are the guys that keep everything going so we deal with them the most yeah so spotlights has put out an excellent new record this year alchemy for the dead yes thank you yeah i'm uh yes excited about it (laughs) and you should be it just came out in april that's correct yeah april 28th so did did the massive tour start pretty soon after that yeah it actually started before so our first show was april 26th here in pittsburgh and then the record uh came out on the 28th so it was nice, good. We tried to time it. And actually, the, during the making of this record, we we kind of put uh, a hard deadline on ourselves because we wanted a tour on the record. So it was it was tough getting the whole thing finished and done in time so it would come out according to the tour, you know. We didn't want to be touring without the actual album being out. Did you, uh, did you actually record the record? I did, yeah. I recorded and mixed it, produced it. Where? Uh, here in my basement where I am right now. So you got a whole setup there? Yeah, it's a little room. Um, but you know, we, uh, so I live in Pittsburgh now, which is another part, but you know, we, after New York, Sarah and I decided to move to Pittsburgh and, uh, this was end of 2018. We were able to buy a house here, which is something I thought would never happen because, right. you know, you can afford things here. And, uh, yeah, so we bought a little house. And I built out the basement. It's small. It's got low ceilings, but it's and I built it really more to be a mix room than anything. But it ha- it does have enough room to 
mic up a drum kit and some amps and uh yeah man we just got down here and and made it happen I love that. Yeah. So did you move to Pittsburgh because New York is ridiculously expensive and you wanted to uh, build something more? Yeah. I mean, that it's it's not only just expensive, but it's hectic and it's dirty and it's very hard to like be in a band like we were being in a band and come home to that. You know, I felt like after being traveling and being in a stuck in a van and, you know, I mean, I love it. I love touring, but coming home after all that work, with like barely any money or no money because you've been paying rent while you were away, New York rent while you were away. Uh, and then you get home and, you know, you have to go to the practice space, take your shit up fucking the freight elevator, go to the thing, then come back, return the van, go back, you know, take the train back home. By the time, by the time everything's said and done, it's just a fucking nightmare. And like, you know, we lived in a four floor walk up in, uh, in Flatbush and it was just, it was just wearing on us. Like, not having any sort of space. We lived with Sarah's sister who was kind of our, our living pet sitter at the time. So we had a lot of animals, three people living in a one bedroom apartment, no space to go anywhere. Um, no money, <laughs> you know, like oh, man. hustling to just like pay the smallest bills we could. And, and, uh, yeah, I don't know. We decided to move and, and we kind of pulled out the map and we always liked Pittsburgh when we came through here on tour so yeah, we just chose it. We didn't know anybody here at all and but just liked it every time. It's a cool looking city. People were nice. It's cheap and we went for it and it's worked out. Yeah, you're used to just moving to a city and not knowing anybody. You've done that before. Yeah, yeah, I've done it a few times. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, pretty much every time I've moved, that's how it's been. So Alchemy for the Dead. Now, reading you talk about this album, there's a lot of themes of death, a lot of talk about death. Is that something you think about a lot or did that just become the theme of this record? Um, a little bit of both. You know, yeah. I think uh, I like the philosophy side of, of you know, life and just and life and death and, and what it is and how different people kind of like think about it and perceive it. And uh, I don't know, it just, it, it wasn't, it's not something necessarily that I'm like, that's a big part of my life or anything, but it is something I think about regularly and, and it's interesting to me. I'm not necessarily, not a, not in like a scary way, just kind of in an interesting way, like we're all going to die. That's a fact that's undeniable, <laughs> you know? So yeah, um, uh, one way or another, we're all going to die. So when we started making this record, there was a point uh, I was, I was kind of still in the writing process and I think I was writing the song, The Alchemist, what ended up being The Alchemist. And I don't know, the melodies that were kind of happening, it just started putting this like kind of feeling in my head of like where, what the vibe was, was going towards. Um, even though some of the songs might've even had some lyrics already, but I wasn't really set on anything yet. That's the, that's the point where I was like, I, it seemed like it was heading in that direction. And usually the songs tend to dictate to me what it's going to be about once they're kind of taking shape. Yes. So, uh, so yeah, I just started writing lyrics and it kind of all started heading towards a, a darker kind of morbid, uh, theme. And that song in particular was more like a, in a fictional sense, like, uh, you know, it's about a deranged murderer who kills people and tries to bring them back to life so he can have a, a partner and fall in love. <laughs> um, <laughs> but he can't, you know, he just keeps killing people and he's really fucked up. But anyway, uh, yeah, I don't know. Little, I started kind of looking at like different 
aspects of the whole thing, whether it's like murder or uh, just actually the the act of dying or you know religion and how people deal with death based on religion and uh, you know just different different aspects of all of that whole thing and it it took shape like that. Yeah, it's interesting to think about how different cultures handle death. Like for some, it's a celebration and a celebration of the life. But here in America, we just kind of tried, like everything else, we just trying to kind of try to cover it up and pretend that it didn't happen. Like we uh, we dress up the body and put a nice suit on it, and we only say nice things, and it's hush hush, <laughs> and then we move on. Totally, yeah, that, <laughs> and then you know we use it as like on the on the religious side of thing, they use it as like a fear, a way to instill fear into people like you're gonna die you're going to hell you know if you don't give us money you're going to hell basically is what (laughs) it comes down to yeah it's interesting how uh like hearing you talk about how it came together like i don't sit down and say this album is going to be about x right like the songs come and i don't even decide what the songs are about it's almost like it comes through me and then it just happens. Totally. And then you get enough songs together and enough themes together. It's like, okay, this is what this is about. Yep. That's all. That's how it happens for me every time. Like I've, there's every once in a while, there'll be a song that comes kind of as a whole, you know, like I'll just sit down and I hear the, I can just kind of like the whole thing just kind of funnels in out of nowhere and 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 it'll have a theme and, and an idea behind it. But I mean, that's like one out of a hundred. Usually it's, like I said, like a beat, a bass line, then some sort of melody. And then with that melody, it'll just start kind of like, it'll develop its own theme. It's, it's interesting how that happens. I think it's really cool. I didn't realize it until I wrote my first record where I was the front man right. in 2017. But the ideas would just come to me like sometimes in dreams sometimes i would pull things people said from the dream and put it into the song like it's a a pretty cool process yeah yeah it's interesting and it's weird how you'll just be like i mean a lot of times that's the one one of the beautiful things about technology and having like these phones with us all the time where you can record is like i'll be just you know walking up the stairs and like it'll just hit me (laughs) it'll be like oh shit i gotta i gotta get this down now uh, I was thinking about that recently, how like the amount of musical ideas that just got bypassed because we didn't have something with us right away, you know, and how, you know, I remember before having a phone or having anything to like record with you all the time, I would be like walking around Boston, let's say when I moved there and have an idea in my head and have to be repeating it over and over and over and over again. And it starts to morph and it's almost like the telephone game, but with yourself to where you're like, fuck, that wasn't it. Now it's different, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's different than it was an hour ago. And now you're like having this like frustration because you can't find that exact thing. And it's just, (laughs) I do that too. Like I, I tapped out a guitar riff on my voice memo on my phone. So I didn't forget it because I was too embarrassed to like hum because I think I was in the office or something. Right, right. Yeah. So I hope, I don't know. We'll go back and see if that was okay. But how about this? How about this? If you don't remember the idea, uh-huh. was it a good idea? Hmm? Huh? I don't know. I, I mean, yeah, obviously you'll, we'll never know. That's the uh, hypothetical question there. True. And not every, not every idea that gets recorded ends up being a good one either. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I've been in situations where let's say someone else has an idea for a song, but I don't want to say this isn't good. We're not doing it. Right. 
So, so you kind of have to give them that song or you just need another song to fill the record or whatever. So you don't love it, but it's like, oh, we need another one. Fine. Yeah, exactly. It's just not not making the mark. So Alchemy of the Dead is out now. Well, first, let me say, now I, I have witnessed people watch you multiple nights in a row. So I can tell <laughs> you that uh, it was a pleasure to see you win over the crowd night after night and just by the end of the set, the entire room would be headbanging. You oh, know, thanks, it, it's it, it's a pleasure to witness. So I can tell everybody from my perspective that it's going great. But <laughs> Mario, let's hear from your perspective. How are things going so far this year with the record out and all the touring and everything? I mean, it's going great, man. I don't think we could ask for more, really. Uh, those shows that we got to play together were so much fun, you know, and that, that whole tour was great because of that. We had little legs of the tour where we we were with different bands that we were friends with and you know that's that just makes everything more fun when with, with you, when you're with good bands and and good people so um the tour itself was what we would consider a huge success uh you know people showed up the shows were great i think better than ever really like uh for us our headline shows you know we we saw a big step up from let's say the last headline tour we did in 2019 the response to the record has been amazing, like seriously, just mind blowing to us. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, I don't know. It's, we can't ask for more. We get to keep doing this and, and people keep listening and, and, uh, that's all we can ask for really. I love that. Yeah. I, and I heard you say it during this conversation and I heard you say it while we were out too, like, just keep going. Yep. And I think that's great advice. Like, you have to, if, well, if, if you're in a band and you want that to be a priority and you want it to be a thing, you just have to make it the priority. Yeah. And you have to keep going. You can't be like, oh, well, this show isn't that good, or I don't really want to do this. Or no, you just got to get out there and do it yeah. and make it everything. There's definitely something to that, uh, you know, like just letting go and, and jumping in because, you know, even like for, like Sarah said this before, she, she was working as a, as a hairstylist and, kind of trying to make it work with all that. And one day she was just like, you know what? Fuck this. I'm not, this isn't what I want to do. Like I want to play music and she just stopped and then things started getting better. And I kind of did the same thing and things, you know, I had a job when I was working in New York, uh, working at Barnard college, just managing their AV department. First kind of real like nine to five job that I've ever had you know, good money, good benefits, not enough money for New York, but still good money and more money than I've ever made. And, um, I had an amazing boss. She would let me tour and work from the road, uh, because I mostly was like scheduling and kind of like just overseeing the department. And, uh, but halfway through it was just getting too much. And like, we were, I was on tour uh, with the Melvins. We were on tour with the Melvins for three months and she was amazing and was like, Hey, let's, let's make this work. However we can. I know this is like, what you really want to be doing. So she let me do it, but she quit my, my boss at the time quit while I was gone. And everybody at that point was just like, what the fuck? This guy's on tour, you know? And <laughs> it, it just, uh, it put a bad taste in my mouth and I was kind of getting fed up with it anyways. I'm just not cut out for that type of thing. Yeah. And I was like, you know what? I just need to th- cut the cord and do this. Like we're on tour right now with the Melvins. <laughs> like, I need to just jump in 100% or get out. So both Sarah and I kind of just went for it. And, you know, as soon as we've done, we did those things, things start happening. And it's the same with recording for me too. Like, uh, you know, 
whenever I stop being worried about money and I, I can actually like just be like, just let go and let it happen, more work starts coming and things get better and better work starts coming. So I think there's something to just just diving in and and don't if it's something you really want, like if you're being honest with yourself and it's something you really want, you have to just do it 100 percent. That's inspiring. Yeah. How old were you when you uh, cut the cord with the job? That was, I think I was 41, maybe 2017, 42, something like that. 41. Was that scary? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I've, I've always waited tables and I've always done front of house for, for in like clubs and stuff like that. So I've always, I'm, I have avenues to like make the hustle work. I knew it wasn't like, oh shit, the only job I've ever had is, is gone. Yeah. You know, it, it's just more, it was more of a mental thing. Like I'm, I'm jumping in a hundred percent. You know, I knew that didn't mean we were making enough money to just by any means, we were still way in the hole, but yeah, I wasn't afraid. I wasn't scared. And I think that's part of it is like, it is scary, but don't be afraid to just do it. And like, and if it sucks and if it all goes to shit, then fuck it. You do something else. You know, it's, it's just, uh, you'll never know if you just don't go for it. That's true. That's true. Oh, so yeah. So you, so you know how to do it. You know how to work this life. Like me, I've worked for the same company since 2008. Yeah. Which wow. is insane. Well, not that I'm thinking of quitting my job, just in case right. anyone uh, who, <laughs> who I work with knows who I am and is listening to this because I love my job and I want to keep it. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's just, uh, it's, it's, a, it's good things to think about. And that's awesome though. I mean, and I, that's what I mean. If you're honest with yourself, if you can really look in and be like, I do love this. I do love where I'm at. I love being able to do both things, you know, like yeah. somebody like Chris, he loves his job and he's not looking to kind of quit his job and only play music. He really does like doing both things. So yeah, he'll always do that, you know, and he's lucky that he's, I think because of that, he's found a way to make it work and he's found a job that lets him work from the road and play in band. So now he's has the best of both worlds. That's what I'm doing too. I work fully remote since 2019 and uh, I can do everything I want to do at this stage and work my job. So everything finally came together to allow me to do that. That's awesome. So what else do we have coming up, Mario? Now, you said uh, your other band, Sisters, yeah, just came out with a new single. Tell us about this band. Tell us about what's coming up. So Sisters is a project between me and my friend Jason Blackmore, um, incredible songwriter guitar player singer he's uh he played in a band called molly mcguire back in the day in the 90s they were they did pretty well they were on epic put out a record on epic and uh did a ton of big tours and whatnot and since then he's played in a bunch of other bands i mean the guy is one of the most prolific musicians i know he's always in like five bands um him and i when we we both were in san diego while i was living there and that's where we met actually um, we started this little recording project, uh, didn't have really any like aspirations for it other than just, he had a ton of songs that he wanted to play and I had a studio and we, you know, I was playing drums and he was playing guitar and then we would put down a song, go in the control room, add some overdubs, put some vocals on it and just keep going. You know, <clears throat> and this was 2009. So sporadically, we just put together a little EP that uh, we never did anything with, we never finished it. Cause I moved and he was again, playing in like three other bands and, uh, and yeah, during COVID we were like, Hey, why don't we do something with this stuff? I still had the files luckily. 
Uh, so we kind of like added some vocals to the ones that didn't have it, kind of finished it. I mixed it and we put out a, an EP on our own. But over the last couple of years, we got together. He flew out here to Pittsburgh and we wrote a full length or he wrote a full length, I should say. And, and I recorded and played drums and some guitar and vocals on it. And, uh, and yeah, I think it's, it's awesome. I'm super excited for people to hear it. It's coming out on Spartan records, which is also a great label. Oh yeah. We're excited to be on. Um, and yeah, the second single for the, for the albums out today, go check it out. Yes. By the time you hear this, everybody, you can hear both singles. So you got to check it out. What are the plans for the band? Are you guys going to play out at all or have you already, or what's, what's the plan? No, the hope, the hope is to definitely play some shows. I don't think we'll be touring as extensively as spotlights. Uh, and I mean, who knows, but at least not in the near future, we'll probably be doing you know, we have hopes to maybe do like a little West Coast run or a little East Coast run over the next year. Maybe probably probably next year if we can make it happen. And uh, Spotlights just put out two Soundgarden covers for a Soundgarden covers album, correct? We did Black yeah. Hole Sun and Jesus Christ Pose. Yep. Yep. Now, wow, two two great uh, selections there. <laughs> we went for the hits. I'm excited to hear that because listen, uh. Well, it depends on who you talk to, but sometimes people will be like, oh, Soundgarden's not that good after this old album or, you know, or I don't really like the singles. But I think Soundgarden up to that, uh, not the last, I didn't hear the last, last album, but the one before that that came out around like 2002 or something, I think up until then they were great. Yeah. I mean, I think they're an incredible band, whether you like them or not, or whoever likes them or not it's undeniable that they were fucking incredible. <laughs> so oh, like, yeah. You know, I think, uh, people's opinions can run rampant on stuff and, you know, it's like, what do not, I'm not saying this to you personally, Keith, but for people that complain so much about records and albums that these bands have made and you're like, what have you done? <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck have you done? And it's usually people just sitting in their bedroom complaining. Yeah. That I, I say that all the time on the show. Like, uh, because bands will talk about, or I'll ask them about critics, you know, like someone said something in YouTube comments or someone criticized you. But like you said, the people doing that are usually people who aren't doing something. Like I would probably never see Mario on the internet trashing another band because <laughs> Mar Mario has, has been doing music his whole life. And why would he rip down someone yeah. else's art? Yeah. Like we don't do that to each other typically. Totally. I mean, I've got my opinions, but I'm not going to just tear somebody down for for no reason like if you're actually doing something and making any sort of art or music you're doing more than most people so i it's not my place to put you down for any reason you know exactly and for a long time i was angry kid on the internet talking shit and making fun of everything and you know i only like these three bands <laughs> but uh i'm 41 years old now and I try to be respectful of anyone creating any art, you know, totally. and I, I'm certainly not going to get on a public forum and uh, rip people down. All right. And yeah. if to, to, to longtime listeners, I know I gave the Beatles uh, a hard time <laughs> on this show for a while, but I really, I just have a problem with Beatles fans more than the Beatles themselves. Right, so right. I'll, I'll just remind everybody. Of and that. again, like, yeah, if I'm not a big Beatles fan per se, but I'd be a complete fucking idiot to realize, to not think or not realize that, those humans were incredibly like beneficial to music first of all and just talented you know still probably some of the best songwriters that have lived so it's you know 
again, what have, what have you done? Like I haven't written a Beatles song, <laughs> you know? Well, I think, uh, spotlights, a lot of spotlight songs are better than Beatles song. No, oh. you see, I'm, I'm, I'm slipping into it again. I can't. Okay. Look, the Beatles oh, are fine. Spotlights are fine. Yeah. It's all good. That's right. Um, so Mario, historically you've done sound for bands too. Like you would go out with say quicksand or shiner and do sound for them on a tour. You've done that before too, right? I have. It's not something, I mean, I've mostly done like local uh, sound at clubs. So I worked at St. Vitus for a while. When I was in San Diego, I worked at the Casbah and a couple other venues. Yeah, it's, it's to me, that's more of a job still. I, I do enjoy it, you know, but I don't love it. Uh, so like this quicksand tour the last year that I did <clears throat> doing sound for them, that was incredible. Quicksand's one of my favorite bands, you know, and they have been since I was like 16. So it's, uh, it was amazing to get to mix them night after night and just hang out with them. And, you know, they're great people as well. So that was incredible. But when it comes down to the actual job, I much prefer to be in the studio. Like I don't love doing live sound. Um, it's a little too in the moment and stressful and it's, it's cool in the sense where it's like a performance, uh, you know, there is like kind of an in the moment performance aspect to it, but yeah, I don't know. It's not, it's not something that I really strive to do, but when it comes to work, it's some of the better work I can get. So I'm not complaining about it, you know? No, I'm with you on that. Like, you know, if there was ever an opportunity to do some kind of live podcast event, I would say no, because I have no control Right. And too many things can go wrong and people right. are talking and I think I have misophonia. So if someone's talking, I'm going to be like, Hey, shut the fuck up. I'm trying to talk. And it's like, oh, yeah. it's a whole, th it's a whole thing. So I'd like to be here home in front of my computers with my equipment where uh, I can be in control of things. Yep. Yep. And, but uh, doing sound live for bands, I imagine that's difficult too, because like I've heard of this happening. Like the venue has a sound person, right? Yep. So if you're coming in with the band and you're like, oh, move over, I'm going to adjust <laughs> the levels here. That that probably causes like some tension sometimes. You know, it does and it doesn't. 90% of the time it doesn't. Usually most people who are good and professional understand it and they're actually excited to work with somebody and, and just help them out. Um, but you do run into the guys that are just like cross their arms and are like, I don't know. You know, like if... I've never been to this venue before. I don't know where everything is. Can you help me? And they're just like, you're, you're, you know, you're the guy. And you're just like. <laughs> now, are they doing that because they really don't know? Or are they doing that because they're being petty? Uh, it's probably a little bit of both. They're probably shitty at their job and they're, you know, self-conscious and they're trying to take it out on you for that reason, you know. So what's the move? Do you walk in and say like, hey, let's work on this together? Or do you say like, hey, get out of the way. I've got this. Like, what's the, what's no, the right I, thing to do? I mean, I think I, whether I'm the front of house guy and somebody's coming in or I'm the guy coming into somebody else's space, I try and be as respectful and kind as possible. And like, I, you know, this room, I want to come to you for, for any advice or help. You know, I know what I'm doing. Sure. And I'm confident in that, but I'm not here to show you up by any means. I'm here to work with you and the venue and try to make my band show the best, you know, the band that I'm working with. Yes. Um, I think, and I, it sucks because a lot of traveling sound guys and tour managers and people that tour in general and crews, a lot of people have really fucking bad attitudes and they walk in thinking they're the shit. They treat people like shit and that stays and it travels that, you know, people who are like that are known for that. And so, 
if you are a guy that's like that and then you show up at another place and they're like, oh, I've heard of this guy. He's a piece of shit. They're all <laughs> right away. They're going to be like arms crossed, like good luck, buddy. You know? Ah. Um, so I think it pays to be a good person. Like it's all, uh, you know, there's no reason not to. You're fucking working with music. Settle down, you know? <laughs> exactly. And it's a small, you know, there's tons of bands out there, but it's a small industry and people talk. So it's best yep. to just be nice to people. Uh, definitely. Yeah. So what can we expect from Spotlights? We know we've got more dates coming up, right? Yeah, we've got a few shows. Canadian mostly. We're doing uh, a tattoo convention in Western Canada and Kelowna, which is on July 28th. And then we fly home and get back in the car and go to uh, do Buffalo, Toronto, and Montreal, and then come home. And um, and yeah, there might be some other stuff. There's definitely some stuff that I, I don't know if I can quite talk about right now that's happening later in the year. And then, uh, but that'll, that'll all be out soon. So we'll be, we'll be getting out and about a little more for this year. And hopefully our, our main goal, which is sort of in the works, but nothing uh, definite yet is, is to get to Europe early next year. Cause Ooh. that's uh, something we really want to do. So. Yes. Why not? We've got to keep going, right? Yeah, exactly. We have to. Okay. You, you, let's, let's say you just finish up an epic three month tour, right? Right. What, what is the first thing you do when you come home? What is the first thing you want to do to like unwind or whatever else? Um, what is the first thing? Can I sleep, I guess. <laughs> the very first thing. Um, but yeah, like we talked about at the very beginning of it, I, I want to work, honestly, like the first thing that I want to do when I get home. It's weird. I, I get, especially on longer tours, I've noticed that I kind of get inspired to write. Um, so as soon as I got home this time, I had to go back to New York, like I said, to do some stuff, but mm -hmm. I've been writing a lot and, and it's helping kind of like shed some of that being home anxiety. And I love being home. Don't get me wrong. I love my studio. I love more than anything like hanging out with our dogs and the cats and just like you know being home like actually having the home life is nice yes but i also have a lot of other stuff keeping me busy which is nice uh, but yeah i've been writing writing a ton of music and kind of just letting ideas go instead of trying to like form songs yet at this point i'm just letting stuff go i think for for this last album uh you know we lucked out and it came out good i think but uh we were kind of rushed in in the long run because we put ourselves on that deadline so i'm starting early this time and just i want to have tons of material to choose from by the time the time comes i like that you're very motivated see when i came home the, the last thing i wanted to do was work believe me <laughs> i i had all these grand plans i was like i'm gonna watch all these youtube videos i'm gonna play all these video games yeah and i passed out at 8 p.m and I didn't wake up till the next day. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, and that's the thing is like to me recording and, and mixing when I'm doing when I'm working with bands that I like to be working with, it is like my playing video games, you know, like I can sit here for hours and tweak and and it's literally fun for me. Um, so I'm, I'm really lucky in that regard where if I am busy with work, most of the time. It's not always because I do get work and I, I will take work every once in a while just because I, you know, if it's something I really don't like, I won't take it. But if it, it might just be something that's like, all right, this is fine. I I can, I think I can make it good, you know. Uh, yes. I can add something to it or, or whatever. Um, I'll take it. But when I get to work on things that I like, it's it's literally just, 
it's exciting for me. Yeah, yeah. You know, I feel that. I feel that. I feel that a lot with the podcast. Like, I'm like, I don't want to edit. Yeah. I don't want to do it. But then I sit down and I have like a big episode on my hands and I'm like, no, this is going to be great. Yeah. You get to listen to your work and it's, I'm sure you sit there and laugh and, you know, like enjoy the whole process. That's, well, here's a, I'm going to let you in on a secret, Mario. Okay. Yeah. And, and the listeners, because they're listening right now too. Okay. So I, I do this nervous laugh thing sometimes. Where yeah. I'll laugh when something's not even funny, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I, I pull those out of the conversation so oh, you don't really? even hear them. Yeah, uh-huh. but but this is how I know something is really funny. I'll laugh when the person says something, uh-huh. and then I laugh in real life when I'm listening back to it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's my litmus test there. I'm like, okay, that was funny. Nice, nice. <laughs> well, Mario, uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show. And listen... You know, I'm so happy that we got to do those tour dates together because that was my first time out playing live in like seven years. You know, I've I've always been somewhat active in music. It's usually a couple years between bands for me, right. but I was so happy to get back out on the road. You guys are great. Well, it was so much fun. Yeah, yeah you sounded, sounded great. Uh, it was a lot of fun to hang out with y'all. It's really good. Yeah. So thanks for helping make that happen. Uh, I appreciate you. I love the rest of the band. I love everything you're doing. So thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And there you have it. Mario Quintero. Excellent, excellent conversation and an excellent band. Like I told Mario, it was a pleasure to be out with them on the road for those five days, to get to see them for those five days. I'm telling you, they have an effect on the crowd. By the end, it would just be this hypnotic jam, myself included, just headbanging, and those beats would be in my head for hours afterwards. I would just be walking around going, until I went nuts. Check out the new album, Alchemy for the Dead, if you haven't heard it yet. But yeah, really great band, really nice people. Was happy to be out there with them. Was happy to be out playing shows again for the first time in a long time. It's just good times all around. So thank you so much, Mario, for coming on the show. So let's check in, huh? How are we doing? How are we doing? I'm doing good. It's Sunday afternoon right now. I got the window open. There's a nice summer breeze coming through. It's uh, it's nice. It's nice. As much as I complain about this time of year... Uh, it does have its upsides as well. I'm gearing up for some Darling Fire shows in August. Hopefully you heard those announced in the first half of the show. We are playing Amityville Music Hall on August 19th. That's a headlining set. That will be my first headlining set with this band. And that's with Loud Sounds. Tim from Loud Sounds has been on this show before. And Semaphore and Screaming from the Gallery. Come check that out if you're in the New York City area. Come on, it'll be a good time. And then on August 20th, I am playing my favorite Philadelphia venue, Kung Fu Necktie. Now, I've only played there twice, once in 2009 with Crash of 64 when I was in that band, and then again in 2015, I think, when I was in Zombie Fight. That's a, well, that was a New York City area hardcore band. So really happy and excited to be playing there again. That's with Hold Down the Ocean. Uh, I was in Crash of 64 with Pat from All Else Failed, Pat Shannon, and Pat Shannon 
is the guitar player and singer in Hold Down the Ocean. That's basically Hold Down the Ocean is basically All Else Failed without Luke, and they play shoegaze-inspired, post-rock-inspired, post-hardcore. It's really, really, really good. And Josh Alvarez, singer of Crossed Keys, is opening up that Kung Fu Necktie show. He's playing solo acoustic. So I'm really, really excited for these gigs. I haven't played any Northeast gigs in a long time, and I haven't played any Northeast gigs with the Darling Fire ever. So we're uh, working on, I'm working on learning a couple new songs for the set, and that's all I've been doing, basically. I want to get those songs down. We've got some new music we're working on. I'm just busy with music, whether it be the Darling Fire or the podcast. We've got more excellent episodes of the podcast coming up, and I'm really excited for you to hear those too. Otherwise, the only interesting thing that happened recently, okay, so I was at my parents' house, and I have all this stuff in my old room, right, in a, in a closet, and when I was a kid, I would make talk shows, right? I had like four or five different talk shows, and I have shoe boxes filled with cassette tapes of these talk shows that I would make. I would be like horror movie characters and host a talk show, like I had a Crypt Keeper talk show. The Chucky doll, I had a Chucky talk show. I think there was one normal talk show that I did. And then other times I would just let a tape run in our room and record while we were doing whatever, playing video games, sitting there talking, and I would narrate as if I was doing a show. And I didn't really remember any of this until recently. So I have a clip here from a show I was doing in my room on July 3rd, 1995. I think I was... 13 years old? I think I was 12 or 13 years old. So here it is. This is me and my younger brother, Kyle, playing video games. And I guess I'm hosting an imaginary show. Here we go. All right, now listen. It's July 3rd, and we're moving August 28th. And we've got two whole tapes for our Moving On special. And be sure to join us. And you can't miss it. You just can't because, you know. And guess what tomorrow is? July 4th. Yeah, and don't miss our July 4th special either. Because oh, if you do, it's what's up to your ass, you know? You know. Wait, you are going to do July 4th special. Wait, time's not getting here. Did you? Oops. Okay, All right. So, one more listening. I know, I already have to. Here, have oh, All right, now. When we're like 30 years old, we'll be listening to this. Oh, how can we listen to this crap? That's what our kids will be like. So, yeah, you stupid kids. Don't make fun of our music because it's good, you idiots. Ha, I'm 13 now. I'm talking to my kids that aren't even born. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? So there you go. I guess I've always been hosting a show in some sense, whether it be in my mind or uh, an actual show. So yeah, that was pretty trippy to hear. You know, like me talking to myself at 30 years old on a cassette tape I recorded when I was 13. Weird, right? I didn't remember that I did this stuff. You know, like I was hosting, I guess this documentation has always been important to me and I have no idea why and I didn't remember until recently. There's all the talk shows that I did. There was those like live real life shows similar to what you just heard that I did. And then when I got involved in the scene, in Bucks County, I had purposefully went out and bought a video camera so that I could record all the shows. And you heard about you heard about that in the early episodes of the, the podcast. You know, I lost the tapes and they got thrown out. 
but I was documenting the shows. I held on to all these flyers and ticket stubs. And then that carried over to Northeast Scene when we started that Instagram account. And now I'm documenting everybody's stories on this podcast. So I don't know what it is or how it happened, but this documentation thing seems to have been a part of my whole life. And here I am again. Not much has changed since I'm 13. I'm in my room by myself, talking into a microphone, recording a show. But now more than two people are hearing it. So that's cool. But it was just a trip to hear that and to hear myself talking to my kids at 30 years old that I didn't end up having and calling them idiots for not liking Collective Soul. Now, look, I can understand. All right. Say what you will about Collective Soul. They've got some jams, okay? The world I know, come on. The world I know is still sick. And uh, I know we were harsh to our future kids there calling them idiots, but I think I think it was supposed to be a joke. So, you know, 13-year-olds, you know, that's their sense of humor. So, yeah, really, really interesting to hear that. And I have more of those tapes back at home. I want to get some of those and listen to them to hear, hear what other gems are on there. So, speaking of spotlights, tonight I am going to a party hosted by the one and only Chris Enriquez, drummer of Spotlights. He's having a party over at Von Bar tonight, so I'm going to go over there and see what's going on. So I'll let you know how that went next week. So that's everything that's going on with me. I hope everyone out there is doing great. I'm back next week. I hope everyone out there is doing great. In honor of summertime, we are going to close with a song that I always listen to around this time of year. It's called It's Summertime by The Flaming Lips. How fitting, right? I'm back next week with a new episode and a new guest. So thanks everybody for listening and until next time. Sad.